Uh, good morning. So good to be here. We are on the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, so we get to hopefully wrap it up today, and then I'll explain where we're going after that. But uh, do I need to adjust this? Is that better? There we go. Um, so if you haven't been with us, we Paul is this missionary that's starting churches all over Europe, Asia, and one he was started in Corinth, and they had a bunch of issues. How do you? They don't have this, okay? They don't have this, because if we have issues in here, uh, one, we have something that they do, which is the Holy Spirit. We have the same spirit that they had inside of them that speaks to us, just like Keith was talking about. He, the Holy Spirit will tell you to do some crazy things and put you on this wild adventure. But we also have this book, which we call the Word of God, it's 66 books, and we can go to that, and I say to you all the time, don't believe what I'm saying up here. Take what I'm saying and filter it through this to see if I'm telling you the truth. You have the same spirit in yourself that I have in me, and you're capable of understanding this. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. And so they didn't have this Bible that you have, and they would get together and they would have issues and they'd have to figure out how to solve these issues. So they relied on Paul a lot to help them with these issues. And so Paul wrote this letter and he went through the checklist of troubles that they were going through. And we get down to the last part of it right here and he begins to wrap up his letter. But one of the issues that Paul was dealing with that the Spirit led him to do was to raise money for those back in Jerusalem. There had been a great famine previously. Now we're, we're in the middle of somewhere around middle 50s A.D. when Paul's writing this letter. The famine has already passed. And that's not a biblical thing. That's a history thing. You can go back and look and see that Israel had a famine during this time. Just look in the history books. But there's still an economic downturn that is happening, and the Jews are poor. They're struggling. And so Paul feels convicted that he's supposed to raise funds from all these other churches that are port cities and wheeling and dealing and having money to, to give and send it back to Jerusalem for this Jerusalem fund. So he's, he's trying to clarify to them and to express to them what he's using it for and why he needs it. So let's pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. It says, now about the collection for the saints. The saints, let me stop there and just say this real quick. Uh, that's you, you're a saint. I know that uh, in... A lot of your upbringing, you believe that a saint is something that's dignified by a pope or somebody like that, but 
all throughout Scripture, we see that Paul refers to those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you are now saints. Everybody in this room that believes in Jesus is a saint. He says, now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. These were the churches that he started on his first missionary journey that were up in northern Asia. It says, uh, on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Jews typically met on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, but he's saying now on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. In other words, plan ahead. Plan ahead and think about this because I'm telling you right now, there's a need and I believe that the Lord is pointing, directing to you to help fulfill that need if that's how the Spirit leads. Now you would think this is going to be, oh, here we go, a tithing message. No, this is not a tithing message. Uh, in fact, it seems very unlikely that Paul's referring to a fixed percentage here of their income. He doesn't say 10%. You're not going to find that anywhere after the cross. That, that's like Old Testament stuff where he said, take 10% and... I, I don't want to chase rabbits here, but you know, take it to the temple, the priests and everything... And if you actually go to Deuteronomy, Keith and I laugh about this all the time, but if you go to Deuteronomy, there's this one thing. If there's not a temple around, take it, and it actually says, go buy strong beer and food and have a party for yourself. That's what it says in the Old Testament. Look it up. So, it's not saying a percentage here. What he's saying is each person should give generously even sacrificially. Uh, not to trade places with the poor, but giving from the surplus that you have. Don't make yourselves poor, but you have surplus. And so we want you to give according to that. Uh, I would say this. Everyone is encouraged to give no matter what your financial situation is. It's highly encouraged. And I'm not talking about giving to Leavener specifically. The Lord may lead you to something totally different. I, I, I'm not looking for your money. You guys know we don't talk about money here. We're, we're good. You guys, you do great here. Uh, but I'll say this. <laughs> it's kind of bold in saying this. Uh, every group has givers and takers. Uh, and I think it's hard, I think it's hard if you're a giver to be the opposite and be a taker. And obviously if you're a taker, it's hard to be a giver. But he's literally saying, give from your surplus. If you've got surplus, give it. If you don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I, I think it's the same thing. I, we just came out of the holidays right here, and we had this whole gift exchange, and some of you that are givers, you know, very generous. 
and those that were takers, you you feel like there's an obligation that I have to like meet that. Um, it's okay. Really, it's okay. Uh, if you're given a gift, you, you have to take it. So in some form, we're all kind of takers. Uh, last night, I went to dinner with Michelle and Corey, and I'm getting ready to pay the bill, and Corey goes, can I buy? I'm like, no, I got it. He goes, no, really, I want to buy. This is a dad and his son. I'm like, all right. It's hard for me to take for my own son. But uh, he wanted to do that for us as parents, and uh, it's cool. You realize I take from you each week. You guys give and give and give, and we take, and we give and give and give. It's all part of the process. Wes and Rachel Kate had a new baby this week. Somebody set up a meal train for them. You're going to give, they're going to take. It's all good. It's all good. Relax. The Langmax. I shared their story this week on Facebook. They're like one of the bigger, biggest givers that we've got. They do anything for you. And for us to be able to do things for them, I'm telling you, it's, it's hard for Micah. It's hard to be a taker. But he needs to be. Needs to be. That's what we... That's what we do here, and this is really all Paul's saying. Some of you are, are so, so generous, so generous, and it's hard to be takers. But there's a beauty about the exchange that happens right here in this room. And I think that's what Paul's vision is for the churches in Galatia and Corinth and the places that he's going, Athens, and to help the church in Jerusalem to help the saints, to help the believers. Verse 3, it says, When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. <laughs> now watch this verse. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. <laughs> I don't know if you read that like I did, but I kind of read, if you give enough that it's clear you were generous, then I'll accompany it. <laughs> But if you don't, I, I don't want to lose faith or look bad if the collection is a meager one. But if you give enough, I'm going to go with them, and I'm going to deliver it. Uh, and here's the interesting thing. You go throughout these books and letters that Paul's written where he's asked for the fun, but we're never told in so many words that the money was handed over to those in Jerusalem. It's never, like, Luke doesn't even talk about the funds. And Luke's there with him. Luke's writing this letter for, for Paul, but never talks about it. And uh, there's this conflict that arises, and we'll get to that in the history part as we go through Acts. But Paul is falsely alleged to having uh, brought a Gentile into a portion of the temple and all of a sudden he gets arrested and everything else and all this commotion happens, we never know if the money made it to Jerusalem. We don't know. It's not here. And then we look at verse 5. It says, I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. Uh, Paul has a plan. This is my plan. This is what I want to do. 
if you haven't been with us uh, as we've gone through Acts, we're really on Paul's third missionary journey. And he always has a plan, but somehow that plan gets altered. It's, it's again what Keith was saying, if you follow the Spirit, some things are going to change. And so now he's indicating his plans for the future, but if we read ahead in Romans and 2 Corinthians, we find out that it doesn't always go as planned. I want to go to Macedonia, I want to go to Rome, I want to go to Spain, but you'll have to wait and see what happens. Verse 7 says, I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend time with you if the Lord allow. Paul was willing to allow time to pass before he visits because he thought this letter needed time to soak in. What good would it have done to write this letter to send it and then I'm going to come there in your presence? I've sat here and gone through this checklist of things that you're struggling with. Read it, work on it, soak in it, and then I'll get there. Verse 8, it says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me. Yet many oppose me. Hmm. Those two verses right there, verses 8 and 9, they indicate there's some opposition in Ephesus. I, now, I, I think opposition is good. If you're a missionary and you're called to a specific area, what do you want to see happen? You want to see your message received and people accept it and lives transformed. But if that has occurred and everybody there is accepting it, why wouldn't you want to move on, right? Why wouldn't you want to move on? If it's good, you've established this church, let's move on. If all you're facing is opposition, which Paul did, why would you want to stay? So now he's like saying, I've got a good group of believers here in Ephesus, but I'm also being opposed. He's got a good balance there that people are growing, but at the same time, there's people, I think that that's good. I think that's good that people are opposing him. So it's a reason enough for him to stay just a little bit longer. In verse 10 it says, If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he is doing the Lord's work, just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Why would they look down on him? Because he was young in age. Young in age, if yet had a teenager up here, which we could easily to teach on a Sunday morning, you guys would have a hard time listening to him. But this is really what Paul's saying. Don't, don't give up on Timothy because he's my guy. He's been with me. He understands this stuff. He knows this stuff. He's capable of teaching it. Listen to him. It says, so let no one look down upon him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I'm expecting him with the brothers. He's really giving Timothy a stamp of approval right here. I'm all for Timothy and therefore you should be for Timothy as well. I'm going to send Timothy there because he's going to encourage you. He's going to teach you and he's going to learn about everything that's going on within the group and he's going to come back and report to me the good things that you're doing probably along with some of the bad. But I need Timothy to go and hang out with you so he can do that and then come back and give me an update. I don't get emails. I don't get instant messages. 
I don't get things like that, so Timothy is it for me. Verse 12, it says, Now about brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. We don't know why Apollos didn't go, but there's this indication that says, uh, you remember when they were arguing about people were following Paul, some people were following Apollos, some people were following Peter, that maybe Apollos knew that if he showed up, it would cause that situation again where it would cause them to become divided because of the teacher, because of their the way that he taught versus the way that Paul taught. And so maybe he avoided that area. Verse 13 says, Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Do everything in love. You know, I think when I wrap up my conversations with most of you in this room, I probably say the two words, stay focused. Hey, stay focused. Stay focused. What is it that we're staying focused on? I would say Jesus. Stay focused on Jesus. But the reason we stay, fo stay focused on Jesus is we know that there's an evil one that is messing with us, sending us messages to our head that causes us to, one, doubt our own identity, which is one of the reasons we keep teaching identity over and over and over again, because the evil one keeps pounding you over and over again that you're worthless, that you're full of shame and guilt and things like that when that's not even scriptural. That's not what the Bible says about you. The Bible says that you're holy, redeemed, righteous, you've been forgiven, you're a child of God, you're an heir to the throne. All these things that tell us about our identity, but the evil one wants to tell us different, so we say, stay focused. Literally, Paul's saying right here, just be, just be what you are. Holy, righteous, and redeemed. Be courageous. Just rest in who you are. Just be. And then he starts to wind down the chapter. It says, brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Achaia, and I have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present because these men have been made up for your absence. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore recognize such people. He's literally saying, respectfully submit to those you recognize as spiritual leaders. Look around. And see who your leaders are. And it's okay to submit to them. Look to them for wisdom. Go to them when you have troubles. Go to them when you need to be discipled. I said there wasn't a Bible back then. They couldn't just like go to their Bible and read. They really became dependent upon these leaders to show them and to guide them and to give them direction. They were proven messengers. He's listing them. 
They are proven messengers, teachers, role models for the faith, and they're highly respected. And Paul was encouraging the church in Corinth to pattern their lives after these three men. Why did Paul want to be around those men? Because they were encouragers in the faith. I, I would encourage you to hang around encouragers. It makes all the difference. Verse 19, it says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> there it is. Greet one another with a Luke. I'm warning you. Just because you have a mask on doesn't mean you can go around kissing people. Uh, you know, in our sexually charged world, we need to stress that this explanation that Paul's given right here was a warm and affectionate greeting of one another, kissing one another on both cheeks. There was nothing erotic about this kiss or sexual context involved with it at all not what this was about. This was just a greeting. And we need to look at today's equivalent. You know, a year ago this time, we would have said a handshake, a hug, or anything like that. But now it's like, uh, it gets as good as knuckles and maybe an elbow bump. That's what it is. It's like greet, another, greet one another with knucks. Really? It's because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But I would say this that greet is the key word. Yesterday, Michelle's birthday, a bunch of you drove by. That was it. The whole, maybe 30, 35 cars, took 20 minutes, just drove by our house. You have no idea what that meant to my wife. I mean... I, I tried to video as much as I could, and she's watched the video a couple times, but every time she watches it, she's just smiling. But to be able to see faces, to greet one another, this is really all Paul's saying. You can come here for the teaching, for the music, everything else, but really it's just being, I've said this over the last few weeks, it's just being together in the same room and greeting one another. Just being here and... <sighs> It's a big deal. And you, I say you know, greet's the big deal, but some of you may say holy is the key word. And the reason that would be the key word is because when you greet each other, it's how you recognize each other that they are holy. When I look at you and go, they're holy, righteous, and redeemed in here. It changes the air in the room. It changes the relationship in the room. It changes the way you touch people, you greet people. Being in one another's presence is huge. Verse 21, it says, The greeting is in my own hand. Paul. In other words, uh, we know from reading Acts and things like this is that, and the church in Philippi helped Paul, but 
he had some kind of eye disease. He had some kind of problem with his eyes. And so Luke is literally the one who pins the letters for him. I don't know how it works because Luke was a doctor and I'm sure his handwriting wasn't that great. But um, he pins the letters for Paul, but Paul will actually take the letter and he'd sign his name real big. He goes, I want you to see that this is my letter, even though I'm not the one that pinned it. But he at least signed it. That's what he says. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Ooh, wait, we, we were doing pretty good, encouraging everything, and all of a sudden, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. You know, in those days, uh, it would not have been politically incorrect. There was no political correctness back then, actually. That's a current issue that we're dealing with. But it, it would not have been politically incorrect for him to put a curse on it. That was common back then, that if you didn't agree with someone, that you would pray that they get cursed. It's an Old, Te Old Testament thing. Pray that they get cursed. But I think Paul's stressing how serious this matter is about being a believer in Jesus Christ. And there's a difference between those who are believers and those who are enemies of God outside of the church. I personally don't believe that Paul is placing a wish or a curse on their life. I think Paul's understanding is that one who rejects the gospel already has a curse on their life. I mean, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Look, if what Keith was saying is that we had an old heart, we're all born with an old heart because we come from the seed of Adam, that we have a sinful nature inside of us, that you're just mean. <laughs> you're evil. But once you come to believe that Jesus is the Savior, that He's the Lord of your life, He takes that old cursed heart out, that old heart out, that cold heart, piece of stone, and he replaces it with a new heart. That's us. That's you in this room. You have a new heart. It's easy. It's natural for you to love one another. It's natural. You've been changed. You've been made a new creation. We get there every week, don't we? And he's literally saying, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. You still have an old heart. I think that's just what he's declaring. I don't think he's necessarily putting a curse on him. And he says, our Lord come. That's where we get the word Marantha. Oh, Lord come. How many times have we said that? Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Let mm, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Anybody in here experienced grace before? Amen. Let that permeate among you is what he's saying. Just let that soak in. If, you, if you've received grace, which I'm pretty sure everybody in this room has, some point received grace, let that grace be the aroma that surrounds you. We get, I, I, I'll say I do. I get hammered all the time because uh, I teach grace. I teach grace and that because I teach grace, then you can just go out and do whatever you want. I even teach that. You can. You can go out and do whatever you want. But because of your new heart and your new creation, you're probably not going to want to do those things that is going to cause you to need grace. And so, again, 
I get bombarded with, oh, you can go with Rusty because you can just do whatever and grace is abundant. And it's Well, that's true. That's true, but if you truly understand your identity, you're not led to do those things. And, and, then, and then the beauty of it is, is you begin to bestow grace on those around you. You begin to tell them the good news. Hey, you know what? He died one time. He died for all sins, past, present, and future. He's already died for all the stuff that you're doing right now. You're already forgiven. He's not going to get back up on the cross and die for something that you do tomorrow. It's a done deal. If you can tell that to others, he's like, let grace flow. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Verse 24, my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Paul's literally telling his reader that he loves them. Are you one of his readers? Yeah, you are. Paul's telling you that he loves you. What a great way to end the letter. So we end the letter. He takes it and he sends it to Corinth by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, as he stated. Here's the letter, guys. I need you to take this to Corinth. Paul gets to see Timothy. He says Timothy's coming back, and then he sends Timothy to Corinth. He says, I'm sending Timothy to encourage you. So he sends the three guys with the letter. He also sends Timothy. Then in history, we know that at this time, about the mid-50s, that Nero, who's the Roman emperor at the time, begins to relieve the ban on Jews in Rome. In other words, they can start to go back to Rome. They were once booted out, but now they can go back. Paul hears about this. He hears about Nero dropping this ban. And he quickly begins to work as a church planter would, as a missionary would, and he sends Aquila and Priscilla to Rome. He's like, I want you to get there before all the Jews get back. And I want you to begin to tell the story of Jesus Christ. I want them to hear about a Savior before they all get back into the city. He wants to establish this Gentile church in Rome, the eternal city. And so he begins to send delegates. We can look throughout Scripture. We can see that he, I'll show you, because I'll butcher these names. He sends Aquila and Priscilla from Ephesus. He sends Phoebe from Centria. He sends Rufus from the Syrian Antioch. He sends, he sends Andronicus and Janias from Jerusalem, Urbanus from Macedonia, and Apelles from Asia Minor. He's sending, he's sending, look, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well that love Jesus. And he's going, he's going to go to Rome with Aquila and Priscilla and begin to tell people about Jesus and establish this church. This is 55 AD. Now, I'm going to take a uh, jump here. I'm going to take a jump here because we've been going through Acts chronologically. But as we begin to move into Rome with the church, the timing is such that we should go to 2 Corinthians next. 
And I'm going to take a pause on the history line. And I'm going to go into Romans because if I go into 2 Corinthians, that's going to put us in Romans in the summertime. And I don't want to do Romans in the summertime when you all are traveling. But I also feel like uh, I've taught Romans in 2009 and 2014. I did. I've taught it twice to Levner. But there's enough people in here that are qualified and excellent teachers, and so I'm asking men and women to teach Romans. So you not just hear my take on Romans, but you hear those who have been studying Romans for quite a while. I think it will be awesome. I think God will do some crazy things over the next few weeks. I th Dave Oltoff, you're next week, chapter one. I didn't just assign that to him right there. <laughs> he, he, we actually have been talking about this around October, November. He's, he's prayed about it. So next week, uh, Dave and Matt are going to come up here and share Romans chapter one, and I'm excited about that. And uh, Keith is going to do chapter 2, and I'm not going to tell you who's doing the rest, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I get it. It's going to cause me to have a break, and with that break, here's what I'm going to do, is I'm going to apply myself to the last half of Romans and come back and teach 9 through uh, the end of Romans, which we've never done here. I know that deals with some difficult subjects and things like that, predestination and and other things like that, but uh, we'll tackle it. I'm not going to avoid Scripture. So I'm going to hang out there for the next couple of months while everybody else teaches, and uh, it'll be a great experience. But let me set the stage for you, Dave, next week. Let me tell you about Rome real quick. Get, get this. Just listen to this for a second, because I'm going to read it to you. First century Rome is a cosmopolitan city, the melting pot of the whole world. It is the Roman Empire in microcosm with representatives of every race, ethnic group, social status, and religion. The city is a perfect square, about two and one-half miles by two and one-half miles. Many of the poor are densely populated outside the city walls. Rome sits on seven hills and contains 14 districts. The city has 1,790 palaces and 46,602 tenement apartments, low-income housing. They're called insulas. The population is about one million. Two and a half miles by two and a half miles, a million people. Citizens range from the miserably poor to the lavishly rich. Half the population is made up of slaves, making it the slave capital of the world. Many of the freedmen live in horrible poverty. The Roman poet, Juvenal, 
in 110 AD described Rome as a filthy sewer into which flowed every abominable dreg. The Stoic philosopher Seneca in 55, the same year, spoke of Rome as a cesspool of iniquity. Are you getting a picture of what Rome was like? The Jewish population is large and free, sitting around 40,000 to 60,000. Jews are spread all over the city. This is like three years now when, the, when Romans was actually written, three years after Nero had let them back in. Jews are spread all over the city, but most of them live in a pocket of the city called Trastevere area. Rome has about a dozen synagogues. All but the rich, excluding the homeless, live in insulas, those apartments. Most insulas are seven stories high, covering an entire block. Heat and light are very inadequate. The first floor is used for shops. The second floor is very... It sounds like downtown Fishers, where they do the shops. And the, the first floor is used for shops. The second floor is very expensive. The poor live on the third floor or above. The third floor rooms are very tiny. They do not have running water. They are also poorly built and sometimes collapse, killing the tenants inside. The insulas are made mostly of timber, so they are a fire hazard in the dry season. The city is extremely crowded with densely packed apartments. It is also unbearably noisy. From dawn to dusk, there is constant babbling in the streets and from the apartments. It is hard to sleep because of the racket. There is no public transportation, no street lighting. These things will not appear in Rome until the 4th century. While the main concourses of the city are attractive, the back streets are dirty, unlit, pitiful, and smelly. They are littered with garbage and covered with flies. The garbage is never removed. The residents must await a heavy downpour to flush it into the Tiber River. In the pits, along the sideways, you can see the bodies of the poor who could not afford burials. If you are poor, Rome is the worst place to live on the planet Earth. That changes perspective. That changes everything when you study Romans. To be able to paint that picture, to be able to see what life was like, and the whole time Paul's like going, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. I want to hang out with you peoples. Paul's nuts. He doesn't quite get there, so he writes this letter to the church in Rome. And that's probably where we're going to be for the next three months, is in Romans. Lord, I trust you here, because uh, in the next few weeks, we get to hear the gospel according to Paul that was written to the church in Rome. And you have blessed, blessed this group of people with the study of Romans for many, many years. And to be able to watch the Spirit work through the men and women in this group to be able to convey that message is an exciting thing. So, this morning, we trust you. We thank you for Paul's letters. We thank you for making us holy, righteous, and redeemed in this room, forgiven, that we can walk in that forgiveness on a daily basis. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.